board. Yeah, go. Okay, thank you, Haley, for uh, reading scripture for us. Uh, just before we begin, let me uh, say hi from Kendra. I got the chance to speak with her on the phone this week. She's doing well. She loves it there. She misses all of us, but she knows that she's in a good place, and uh, it's going well so far. So keep praying for her. Um, yeah, so each year, or at least each well, yeah, each year we, we like to do a series on evangelism. Not a super long series, but, but an in-depth series on evangelism. Now, maybe you hear, uh, hear me say that and you kind of go, ugh. I, in all honesty, I kind of go, ugh. Uh, and it's not, <laughs> it's not because uh, evangelism is, is something that uh, I don't like or I don't think is important. The reason, the reason I, I go, ugh, and possibly the reason you go ugh is because uh, evangelism, when you bring up evangelism for a Christian, immediately it seems to evoke um, a sense of guilt because most of us are kind of inadequate. We feel woefully inadequate in our ability to do evangelism. And if we're honest, uh, when we look at our kind of track record in terms of sharing the gospel with non-Christians, uh, we we have not done very, very well. We are woefully inadequate in our success and, and even in our application of evangelism. And so what we want to do, what we tend to do, is we kind of try to just ignore it. Uh, strangely enough, at the same time, we don't like that we ignore it because we, if you love Jesus and you believe in him, then you want your loved ones to know Jesus and believe in him as well. You believe it's important to be able to share uh, the gospel uh, with others, and so you want to learn how to do a good job of it. So we sort of have this ambivalent attitude toward evangelism. It makes us feel guilty, and so we don't want to think about it, but then at the same time, we think it's kind of important, and so we do want to think about it. We're not sure what we want to do about it, so what we're going to do about it is we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it for a few weeks together, actually. Um, one, of the, one of the problems that we're facing right now in our culture is that, frankly, if we're honest, we have to admit that it seems like people don't really care. Um, we're becoming apathetic as a culture. People in our culture, they seem to not really care about the big questions of life. Things like, you know, what is our meaning? What is our purpose for existence? Uh, what's wrong with the world? Why is it so messed up? And, and how can we solve uh, these deep problems? And, and what's, the, what's the goal of history? Where are we going? So people don't seem to really care about answering those kinds of questions, or at least it seems. They, when I talk to people, oftentimes it seems like they don't really have a strong opinion on whether God exists or not. They're kind of like, meh, because to them, really the question whether God exists or not is frankly irrelevant to how they live their day-to-day -day lives. Now, we're going to see over the coming weeks, hopefully, that there are reasons for that, reasons for why people are kind of in this state of apathy in our culture right now. But for our purposes, we need to realize that, that if the gospel is true, and if you're a Christian, you believe the gospel is true, then 
we need to learn how to engage a culture that is kind of meh about religious questions. We need to figure out how to, how to answer people when they say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just not very religious. Or, oh, you know, you believe in God and you believe in the Bible and you believe in Jesus. Oh, that's very interesting. How, how good for you. <laughs> and then that's sort of all they have to say. And then the, they say, you know, how, oh, did you see the game last night? You see how Toronto stormed back to tie it up in the third period and then they lost in overtime. They changed the subject. What we're going to do is we're going to do a deep dive into this story in Acts where Paul is in the city of Athens. And we're going to spend a whole bunch of weeks on this passage. We read the whole thing this week so that we know kind of the story and have heard the whole story, but we're not going to read the the entire story every week. But we are going to look at this story because it has so much to teach us about principles of cultural engagement not necessarily exactly, you know, the how-tos of doing exam, uh, uh, evangelism, but the principles of cultural engagement. Now, certainly this culture was very different than the one we live in. We live in a culture that is far less overtly religious than this culture, uh, but it's less different, actually, than you, you may think. There are principles of engagement uh, that are applicable to all times, to all cultures, to all places that we find in this story together, regardless of the concepts or context. So what we're going to do is each week as we study Acts 17 together, and we're all going to be experts in it by the end, which is kind of cool, we're going to look at one principle that we can learn from this story, and then how to apply it to our modern circumstances, okay? So think of this as like a long teaching series. I call it a teaching series because typically I think my, my goal in, in, in preaching is to inspire. <laughs> um, and this time I think my goal for this series is largely, I hope it's going to be inspirational, don't misunderstand me, but, but it's, it, it's more to instruct. Uh, and it's called, the series is called Good News for Philosophers. And the reason we're calling it good news for philosophers is, is because today, many people in our culture would say, you know, religion had its place in humanity's past when we were less evolved than we are now and less sophisticated than we are now, less mature, intellectually mature than we are now. We needed religion to kind of explain things that we didn't understand. But thanks to advances in science and technology and these kinds of things, we don't need religion to deal with uh, the unexplainable the way we used to. And so uh, we're we're supposed to have kind of outgrown religion. Uh, We're smarter than that. Hmm. I think what we're going to see is that the gospel actually has a lot to say to smart people, has a lot to say to sophisticated people, because that's exactly who the Apostle Paul engages on what's called Mars Hill. This is, this is Mars Hill, uh, the Areopagus. Those are the kinds of people that Paul engages. Uh, and so as we go along over the, the, these weeks, hopefully we're going to see what the gospel has to say to smart people. So without further ado, let us 
dive in together to the very first principle that this passage uh, shares with us. And it's right there in verse 16. And that's really the verse that we're going to study together this morning. The first verse of the passage. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Here's the first principle. What the gospel teaches believers is that we need to love our culture. We need to love our culture. We need to, the gospel gives us new eyes and new hearts to love our culture. Now, let me explain what I mean. Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. Luke tells the story of Paul's missionary journeys throughout uh, uh, the ancient Near East. But the information for this story he gets from Paul himself because if you go back in the book of Acts, you learn that, that Luke was left at the city of Philippi by Paul and he carried on with um, Silas and Barnabas um, uh, continuing to, uh, to, or no, not Silas and Barnabas, Silas and Timothy continuing on to the city of Thessalonica where he preached the gospel and then he went on to the city of Berea where he preached the gospel and he left Silas and Timothy in Berea and he himself on his own continued on to Athens. And so Paul finds himself in Athens and what he's there for, frankly, actually, is a little bit of downtime, a little bit of vacation time. Paul, in, as, through his travels through Macedonia, he has been beaten, he has been whipped, he has been imprisoned, he has been run out of town on a rail, and Paul is tired, and he is, you know, he's exhausted mentally and physically, and he's here in the city of Athens to rest. And it's a great place for a guy like Paul to be, because you see, Paul was a very sophisticated guy. Paul was educated in what you could call the University of Tarsus. That's where he, he grew up, and, and he was educated there. And then he did graduate studies under Gamaliel in the city of Jerusalem. And so Paul was a very uh, learned individual. And here he is in Athens, and he knows this city. He knows the great thinkers of the past. He knows about Socrates, and he knows about Plato, and he knows about Aristotle. He knows about these people. And he's familiar with their poets and he's familiar with the literati and, and he knows that he is spending time here in the intellectual center of the universe. At least for that time, it was the, the intellectual center of the universe. Athens was a remarkable city. It was the, the first democracy that we are aware of. It was the place where, where classical art and sculpture and architecture was developed and, and, and uh, not just poetry and, and epic uh, writing, but also plays and the theater. And so here is Paul, a very sophisticated man, on vacation in probably the most famous city in the world at the time. And what happens? Verse 16 says that Paul looks around, and because of the gospel, he sees this city with new eyes and, new, and a new heart. He's not just a tourist here. He, he notices the culture around him. He notices what's going on. The, the, the verse says that he saw the idols. You know, when he looked at these temples, he didn't just see that they were gorgeous buildings of phenomenal uh, architectural design. He saw that they were meaningful, that they had some kind of religious significance that was very, very important. Now listen, 
If you're listening this morning and you are not a believer, you are not a Christian, what you need to understand is, is that the gospel, when the gospel looks at you, what it looks for are your most basic commitments. It's concerned about the things that are most basic to you, the things that matter to you most, the things that are most central. You see, the gospel isn't entirely concerned, isn't terribly concerned with what kind of car you're driving or, or what kind of clothing you like to wear or what kind of job you have, what, what your reputation is in the, in the business field that you're in or how many degrees you have or what those degrees are in. No, no, no. The gospel cares about your most basic commitments. And when you are a gospel-saturated person, Christians, if you're listening to this, when you are a gospel saturated person that's what you care about too when you look at a person when you look at a, a non-believer that you know in your life are, are you or, or that you don't even know all that closely how do you evaluate them what are you looking for when you look at them are you looking at how they dress and thinking about how you dislike you know their fashion sense are you put off by their you know rough demeanor if that's what they have or are you judgy about the fact that they really like to dress well and they're, they're kind of manicured? You know, they, they like, they, you know, as a man, let's say, they, they like to care about their hair and care about they dress. And maybe you're the type who, who doesn't care about that and you think that that's, you know, that that's something that men shouldn't bother with. What, what are the judgments that you are making upon people when you meet, meet them for the first time? The scriptures say that, that if you are a gospel-saturated person, you're not looking at those things that the world looks at. You're not looking at images you're not looking at, at achievement you're looking at commitment because you see what matters to you most what those basic commitments are those things are the things that you worship those are the things that control your life now admittedly sometimes it is a little bit hard to see these so-called idols in our modern world because we don't have the same kind of temples i mean paul walked around the city of athens and he saw he saw the temple to athena and he saw the temple to dionysus and he saw the temple to zeus and so it was very obvious that these were temples to various idols today we don't quite have that but if we engage our culture if we're going to engage our culture christians you need to know what the basic fundamental idols of our culture are what does our culture value what matters a lot to our culture things like well power we value power in our culture we value sex in our culture we deeply value technology in our culture we deeply value uh, consumerism in our culture and the and the uh, the accumulation of stuff and we value we value individualism we we value autonomy we value people being to ex being able to express their own individual wants and desires and identity these are the things that we mad that matter to us these are the things that that our culture values that's what we worship in other words because you see, worship, as I've said, is, is this idea where, where you val whatever it is you value most is the thing that you worship. It's the thing that you control. So, so the word worship actually comes from a Middle English word called worth -ship. 
It's ascribing value to something and saying that this thing is the thing that matters to me more than anything else. And as Christians, if we're going to, to engage our culture, we need to be able to understand what our culture values most. And there's two things you can do to help you learn how to do that. And the first one is analyze your own heart. Analyze your own heart because you see, you are a product of this culture. I am a product of this culture. We swim in this culture every day. We, we work in this culture every day. We are educated in this culture every day. We are part of this culture. We are this culture. And so it is fair and wise, actually, to ask yourself to look at your own heart and say, what is it I tend to be drawn to? What is it I tend to be, uh, to be committed to? What are my most basic commitments? Because... If you struggle, to, you struggle with idolizing these things, it is in all likelihood the case that these are problems in your culture at large. You know, there, there's a sense in which believers, even if you're a believer, you're not, you're not that different from your unbelieving friends and neighbors. There's a sense in which the, the, the things that they find valuable, the things that matter to them are, are going to be temptations to you, things that are going to matter to you. And, and you don't want to be a frog in the kettle. You know that old, that old uh, analogy that, that if you put a, a frog in a kettle and you turn the heat up slowly, uh, it will boil itself to death because it doesn't recognize it's getting hot? If you, you try to put a frog into a hot kettle, it will jump out immediately because of the shock. Well, you and I, we don't want to be frogs in the kettle. We want to analyze what's happening in the culture by analyzing our own hearts. And this is a principle that the Bible tells us in, in the Old Testament is, is deeply important. Listen to what, what the apostle, or not the apostle, what King David says in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You need to do what you call gospel, ruthless gospel evaluation of those things that, that tend to pull at your own heart and, and, and set themselves up as, as idols in your own life. I'll give you a simple illustration for myself. So when I analyze my own heart and I think, what do I have a tendency to idolize? I can tell you right now, one of the big ones is uh, success. That's often a thing that, that, that men struggle with. Well, I'm one of those men that struggles with it. The, the culture tells me that when I am successful and I have a good reputation for having, having done very well in my career, then, 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 then I'm somebody, then I've arrived, then I matter, then I can go to bed at night and feel good about myself. It's an idol of our culture that I personally struggle with. And, and so I need to be aware of that. And you all have your own struggles that, that may be similar to mine or may be uh, very different from mine. But certainly you have them because as John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. We are constantly manufacturing idols. Things that we set our hearts on that we say, if I have that, if I have that, then I'll be okay. So analyze your own heart. But the second thing is, is that you can do, is you can be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for the messages your culture sends and how your culture sends them. 
That's exactly what Paul does in verse 28. What does he say? He says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He's quoting a poet and a philosopher. A Greek poet and a Greek philosopher. He understood the poetry. He knew the philosophy of the age. He, he was able to engage. We're going to look a little more deeply next week at, at how Paul, I think next week, how Paul engages the Stoics and the Epicureans. These are two schools of philosophy. But Paul was able to engage them because he understood them. He was keen to see what made the city tick. If we're going to understand how to engage our culture. We have to follow the culture. Not follow the culture like do what the culture does. Follow the culture like have your pulse on what is happening in the culture. Now I admit, I've, I've wrestled with this one because this is tricky. Uh, because one way that a lot of people are following the culture is social media. And it is a very good way, in, in one sense, to have your finger on the pulse of the culture. But it's so dangerous. So many people are getting sucked into the polarization that, that happens through social media. Many Christians are getting sucked into that as well. And I understand the place that social media... I mean, Mark and I talk about all this all the time. I'm sort of like anti-social media. Mark always is telling me, no, there's some good things and good ways that you can use it. And I'm like, I think it's all evil. He's teaching me to be a little less uh, uh, black and white about it. But I'm hopefully teaching him to be a little more black and white about it. It's an ongoing argument. In any case... There are other ways you can go. You can read blogs, cultural cult, blogs that are, and, and newsletters that are that are that are responsible and good at Christian evaluation of what's happening in the in the culture around us. I recommend Cardis, for example. I recommend First Things. I recommend that you go to Breakpoint, which is part of the Colson Center. Sign up for their daily uh, their daily uh, newsletter, and it will give you a, a way of culturally engaging. Um, the point is simply this, though. When the gospel grips you, you have new eyes that, that, that enables you to look at what's happening around you, not simply as a participant, but as a critic, a good critic, a gospel critic. Because not only do you have new eyes, but the second thing is you have new hearts. You'll notice in verse 16 that Paul, it says that Paul, when he saw these idols in Athens, he was greatly distressed. Paul was greatly distressed. What does that mean, that he was greatly distressed? Well, you know, actually, uh, we get our word paroxysm from greatly, from the word that is translated greatly distressed here. Paroxysm, you know, like having a fit. Paul nearly, you could almost translate this as, Paul nearly had a heart attack when he was looking at the idols that he saw in the city. Was he angry? Yes, he was angry. He was seething. He was storming mad, you could say. Now, why was he so angry and so storming mad? Well, that's, that's something that we need to, to wrestle with, you see, because Paul's concern here was the glory of God. You've got to stick with me here to understand what I mean by this. See, when the gospel gets into you, when you become a gospel-saturated person, what you begin to do is you begin to see everything from the perspective of what brings glory to God and what doesn't bring glory to God. 
This word, translated greatly distressed, in the Old Testament, it's used mostly for God himself when he is provoked. When God is provoked because of the idolatry of his people. So the big example, of course, is in Exodus when the Israelites, they set up a golden calf and God comes down off the mountain and he sees the golden calf and he is provoked to anger. Because why? They, the Israelites, are taking the glory that is due him only and they are giving it to this idol instead. They gave glory to another. And that's the same uh, reaction that Paul is having when he sees all this idolatry in the city of Athens. He sees that, that because he loves God and he wants God to, to, to receive the glory that he, de- he, he deserves, he is angry at the idolatry that he sees around him because people are giving that glory to other things. Now, that's a little bit difficult for us today, admittedly. Uh, we live in a very live-and-let-live culture. You know, you do you, right? You feel the way you feel, I feel the way I feel, and as long as we just kind of leave each other alone, we'll both be happy. But you see, Paul cared about what other people thought about God. And we need to care about what other people think about God because idolatry is taking the glory that God alone deserves, the weight the importance, the status that God alone deserves, and giving it to something else. Now keep with me here. Paul's anger is not at the people per se. It's at the idolatry. When he sees what he sees in the culture, he's not furious at the individual peoples he's furious at the idolatry that he sees around him and this is an extremely extremely important point why why is God angry when we don't treat him the way we should when we don't glorify God. You know, the Bible's always saying, glorify the Lord with me and glorify God. And God says, I will not give my glory to another. He says that in Isaiah 48. Why is that so important to God? Is God like an egomaniac? Have you ever wondered that? Like, what's up with you, God? Why do you need to be glorified all the time? Are you kind of insecure? Are you, are you one of these kind of narcissistic people that, 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 that always needs to be affirmed constantly? I mean, whenever you meet a person like that, you, you feel like, oh, man, they're, they're kind of, they're either obnoxious or they're super needy. They're not always the kind of people that you like. Is that what God is like? And the answer to that is no, not at all. That's not why God demands that we glorify him. God, the Bible teaches, is utterly self-sufficient. Do you know that when you glorify God, when you bring glory to his name, when you praise him, when around the world this morning there are millions, perhaps billions of people praising the name of God and celebrating Jesus Christ and saying hallelujah, we don't add a thing to him through our worship. Nothing. He is completely self-sufficient. So why in the world is it necessary? Well, here, let me give you an illustration that will help. Imagine if you had a vase on your kitchen table and maybe you don't even remember where you got the vase from it just it's there you know it's one of those things you collect and you use it right you fill it with water you put flowers in it that kind of thing and it just sits there and that's all well and good but then somebody comes over 
maybe it's a friend or a neighbor or someone shows up and, and they, they, they look at the vase and they go, whoa, where'd you get that? And you say, oh, beats me. I don't know where I got it. It's just here. Do you understand what that is? Like, what do you mean? Well, this, this vase is from the Ming Dynasty in China. It is an example of the incredible artistry and craftsmanship of an ancient culture that has been lost down through the centuries. This thing is priceless, okay? And they, they begin to show you, as they show you the intricacies of the pattern and the painting and how they, how they form this thing, they begin to show you that this is an absolutely beautiful piece of art. And you didn't realize it uh, until now, but they're like, you know, this thing is probably worth a million dollars or more. And you're like gobsmacked. Now, what do you do? You say, oh, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't realize what I had. I was treating this thing so lightly. What a fool I've been. Now you respect this vase, right? This vase, now you, I don't know, you insure it, you put it up behind glass, you put an alarm system around your house, you, you treat this thing the way it deserves to be treated. Now, did the vase demand that of you? Was the vase, vase arrogant? Well, it did demand it of you in a sense, but it's not arrogant or, or insecure. It just is what it is because of its intrinsic value, because of its intrinsic nature. And it's, it's fitting for you to treat it the way it deserves to be treated. It makes sense for you to treat it the way it deserves to be treated. Because now when you walk by this vase, you don't go, hmm, another vase on my table. You walk by this vase and you go, I've got this amazing, beautiful vase. I can't believe it. And it brings you tremendous joy. You stand in front of this vase sometimes and you just gaze upon its beauty, even if it's behind glass. And if you are going to touch it, you put on your white gloves and you touch it and you look at it and you, you, you inspect it and you glorify it because it deserves to be glorified. It's fitting for you to glorify. Look, guys, we all know if we treat important things as though they're unimportant, we miss out. This is why God is angry. This is why Paul is angry at the idolatry he sees around him. He sees the Athenians missing out. They're not treating God the way they should treat him. They're not glorifying him the way they should glorify him. And it makes it angry, not because he's like, I hate those people who are godless, but because he pities those people who are godless. He doesn't know them personally, but he, he sees them all enslaved to their idolatry. And this is how we need to see our culture. Listen, our culture is godless, yes. Many people in our culture, they could care less about God. Yes, it's true. They don't care. They have no interest. But, but our passion for God's glory should not make us disdain our unbelieving neighbors around us. It should make us pity them. It should make us weep for them because they're missing out. They've got this priceless vase called the God who created the universe right there in front of them and they don't see it. Jesus is this priceless treasure. Look, come on, guys, let's be honest. You, you believers... You go on your social media and you see a video promoting godless behavior. 
Maybe it's promoting an agenda around all the fighting over social justice stuff. Maybe it's a blog post promoting uh, tearing down Christian institutions that don't support certain sexual identities. And you read those things or you watch those things and your natural reaction is to be angry. Yes, rightly angry. But sometimes your anger is at the person who wrote it. Your anger is at the person who, who showed the video. I remember watching a video once where uh, some pro-life demonstrators were standing in front of, a, uh, of, a, of, a, of a, an abortion clinic. This was in the United States. This kind of thing doesn't happen in Canada. They're standing in front of a United, uh, an abortion clinic, and they're, they're just holding a quiet, one of those silent vigils. And a pro-abortion activist comes up to them and just starts berating them and starts screaming at them and calling them every name in the book and then takes a swing at one of them, and it's all kept on video, right? And I remember my reaction was, oh, I wish a cop would come out of nowhere and just label him like an NFL linebacker and taser him and put him on the ground and show him, you know, that you can't do that. And I just, the anger at the individual that poured out in me. And then I, I, I realized upon some reflection, this person is enslaved to an ideology. And I hate the ideology, but... This is a person made in the image of God, enslaved to the ideology. And so we need to learn to, to, to have the great distress that the Apostle Paul had. That people are missing out on this treasure that is Jesus Christ. He is more valuable than all the world's prizes, including Ming Dynasty vases. The Apostle Paul, listen to what he said in Philippians chapter 3. He said in verses 8 and 9, he said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing, per, eh, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Because of what Jesus had done for Paul and has done for you and has done for me, living the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, We have a distress over the idolatry that has enslaved our culture, and we have a love for the people who are living in bondage. That's the first principle of engagement, friends. We have to love our world, not for what it teaches and what it believes, but love them the way Christ loved them, with hearts of mercy. Let's pray. Father, teach us to love the way Jesus loved. Teach us to love the way Paul loved, to be angry the way Paul was angry at the idolatry we see around us because we have become aware of what we see around us. Give us those, those eyes, Father. And, and Lord, give us the courage to engage uh, this, these, these idolatries as we see them crop up in our own hearts but also as we see them crop up kind of in the world around us. Give us the wisdom to know how to do that, we pray. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. You know, I forgot to use as an illustration in my message I was going to in this, this cultural engagement thing. That's one of the reasons we do book clubs.
Every year we do a book club that a book book club book that is trying to engage the culture, at least one book that is trying to engage one of the the the, 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 the hot button sort of cultural issues um, that we're facing right now. So you know we have uh, we have Brendan's book this year, uh, confronting no confrontate. What is it? Confronting injustice without compromising truth. Confronting injustice without compromising truth. We have my book. Uh, no, my book. Modern. Uh, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. These are attempts at us to do cultural engagement. So, um, yeah, that's an illustration I wanted to share and I forgot, so now I'm using it. Let's sing. <laughs> 